Hello and welcome back to Horror from the High Desert. I am your host, Scotty Milder, and my guest this week is Michelle Renee Lane. So Michelle is a speculative fiction writer born and raised in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. She misspent her youth consuming vampire fiction, climbing into strangers' cars, exploring abandoned buildings, reading tarot cards, dropping acid, befriending skaters and skinheads, and consulting the dead with a Ouija board. Michelle writes cautionary tales about the perils of falling in love with monsters. Her short fiction appears in several anthologies, and her Bram Stoker Award-nominated debut novel, Invisible Chains, is available from Haverhill House Publishing. Book one of her erotic paranormal romance series, The Courtship of Nora Fagan, is available from Stardust Romance. She holds an MFA in writing popular fiction from Seton Hill University. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please go to whatever streaming platform that you're using. Go ahead and give me a five-star rating, leave a review, let me know what you think. And here we go with Michelle Renee Lane. So I kind of want to start with, uh, you wrote an essay. Um, It appears in the Writer's Workshop of Horror, uh, Volume 2. It's called, Am I Really a Horror Writer? And I was really kind of um, a little dumbstruck by the fact that, and I want to get there in a little bit. We're going to talk about your novel, Invisible Chains. But it's a little amazing to me that people were unsure whether to market that as a horror novel and that people were really like pushing to market it as a romance. (laughs) Um, I thought that was... uh, I don't know. That was surprising to me. Well, I guess let's just go back and kind of talk about like your kind of journey as a writer and what was it that drew you to horror and how you kind of define horror? Like what does horror mean to you? Um, that's Those are really good questions. So how I define horror, I think one of the things that I actually talk about in that um, in that piece is the fact that horror means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons why I struggled to mm-hmm. be defined as horror is I feel like until like maybe the last, I don't know, anywhere from five to 10 years, at least in my experience, horror had a very um, narrow set of parameters. Mm-hmm. So and it was being defined by a very specific group of of people. Mm-hmm. The most famous definition of horror is from Lovecraft, and that is right. that it is this feeling of of fear, and it's a fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're going through your day to day life without having um, constant threats to you as a person, if mm-hmm. you are wherever you go, you are in safe spaces. Horror is going to mean something different for you. It's me. It is going to be something that's unknown. Mm-hmm. But I think for a lot of people living in the world, people of color, women, um, right. anyone who is is not considered part of at least until recently mainstream culture, I feel like day-to-day life has enough threats that horror is going to mean something very different for them. Mm -hmm. So the idea that, you know, I wanted to, I always wanted to write a a vampire novel. That was my thing because that's kind of how I, one of the inroads for me to horror are are vampires. I love them. I think they're very interesting. And, you know, as a young person living in the middle of nowhere who, was always kind of living in the margins because of how I looked and Mm -hmm. where I grew up. For some reason, I was very much drawn to them because they are powerful in in their weirdness. There's still... 
they're still very powerful beings, but they still have to live on the outside of society because their differences make them in some ways dangerous. Obviously they're Mm -hmm. dangerous, (laughs) but they're also weirdly attractive and interesting sometimes. Mm. And so I, you know, I consumed a lot of vampire fiction as a teenager. I was reading Anne Rice. I read uh, John Skip's The Light at the End. That Mm, is like, that was like a completely different experience than a lot of the stuff I was reading. I read George R.R. Martin's uh, vampire novel way back in the day and um right right and what was that one called oh, gosh. um <laughs> oh my gosh that's terrible i can't i can't remember yeah i read it too but I, i'm i'm also blanking on the name uh, it'll it might it might come to me but like again that was very different too and so i tried to read a lot of different types of vampire fiction but here's where it gets a little weird for me so my when I was a teenager, you know, it was like, you know, the, it was the mid to late 80s. And there were these these magazines for teens that featured mm-hmm. like, you know, different pop groups or whatever. And I, there was usually a section in the back that enabled you to like connect with people. Like you could put an ad in to get like pen pals or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And because I lived in the middle of nowhere and I was like, I want to talk to more weird people. I want to know, you know, people listen to the weird music that I'm listening to. People are into vampires, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I so kind of, I think I kind of came along at sort of the tail end of that. Cause I remember those that I never quite had the guts to actually do that, but well, you know, the, it's kind of like being a like having pen pals was kind of like having internet friends before right. the internet. And yeah. so like I put an ad in and I think I named I think I called myself Antique and because I didn't give my real name. And then um, I listed myself as being like 125 years old, something <laughs> like that, something ridiculous, right? Yeah. And I got an astounding number of responses. Like I still have... Mm. I still have some of these letters from people from like all over the world and they were fascinating and they were probably in the same age range, some older, some Mm -hmm. younger, but I connected with this person, Carlos Velasquez, who lived Mm. in New York city. The the name, we'll come back to that name. Right. (laughs) He was about 10 ish years older than me Mm -hmm. and he became weirdly obsessed with me. Mm. He would send me all kinds of cool stuff in the mail. These really elaborately decorated envelopes with all this different like mm. horror imagery. But his letters were super inappropriate. Mm, yeah. um, and as a 15-year-old girl, that was exciting. Mm-hmm. This dude who like was so into vampires that he wanted to be one was sending me, was giving me a lot of attention. Okay, right. which is dangerous right and and unhealthy but it was exciting at the time right. i actually went and met him and spent mm. time with him a couple of times like in my teens and then in my early 20s and it was always really strange because he was incredibly shy in person mm. but he had a lot of ideas about how we would live our lives together as vampires mm. I mean, I, I can kind of draw a line between this experience and obviously Invisible Chains. Right. Um, and that does seem like, uh, sorry, I just, not to interrupt, but just, that seems like a recurring theme between some of your short fiction and Invisible Chains is this sort of attraction to danger. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this definitely um, going into a situation and knowing that it's likely to end badly and yet you're sort of compelled. 
Right. Yeah, I'm actually in my brain. I'm kind of writing a piece right now. It's not, nothing's on paper yet because I'm still kind of formulating it. Mm-hmm. But it occurred to me maybe a month or so ago when I was working on the follow-up to the first Nora Fagan book mm-hmm. that I literally have a character who is a death deity mm-hmm. who is obsessed with my main character. And so this idea that we we play around with this idea of like, you know, flirting with death, mm-hmm. but like, what is that about? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, why, why do I keep creating these characters who are obviously dangerous to my protagonists, who want to get close to the protagonist, who want to convince them that they're safe as long as they play by their rules Mm -hmm. and live out um, a fantasy version Mm-hmm. of who they are well and, and it makes sense that the vampire would be kind of uh central to some of your interest in that because you know i teach uh, in fact right now i'm teaching uh an international horror cinema class and oh. one thing i you know start with is i talk about all these different kind of horror archetypes you know and you know and i have I have, I've talked about it on this podcast before, but I have a fairly broad definition of what horror means to me, which is kind of simply the idea of the irrational invading irrational world. Oh, um, I like that. You know, the the world makes sense and then something comes in and suddenly the world stops making sense in some mm-hmm. way. And that can be everything from a supernatural thing to dealing with a gaslighter. You know, I talked to Ray Knowles um, on this podcast and her novel, uh, you know, very much is deals with the idea of gaslighting in a, mm-hmm. in a kind of horror way. So it can be grounded and realistic. And to me, the vampire is such a interesting, unique archetype because, you know, the way I talk about it with the students, and this is obviously not a wildly original thought (laughs) but you know the vampire kind of representing this idea of the seducer Mm -hmm. you know the manipulator Mm -hmm. and it is this idea of like being attracted to danger being you know flirting Mm -hmm. with death like you Mm -hmm. said it's it's not a zombie where you just want to run away (laughs) yeah um no you're actually it's it's the idea of being drawn to this thing and again that can be a literal vampire or it can be you know an abuser you know, someone, right. a, a manipulator, a, a sort of a human predator. So right. it's a very expansive mm-hmm. archetype in that way. And you you have used that archetype in some really interesting ways kind of throughout some of your fiction. You know, obviously in Invisible Chains, but, you know, one of your short stories that I found really, it's one of my favorite short stories I've read probably this year is it's uh, Thus Do We Reach to the Stars. Um, mm-hmm. It's from the Monstrous Feminine, I believe is the anthology mm-hmm. yeah and i forgot to write down the publisher who, who put that one out um that is that's scary dairy press okay yeah i loved that story. and one thing i loved about it is in some ways it's a classic vampire story and yeah it's a fallen angel mm-hmm. you know it just shows the kind of the versatility of that archetype mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know back to back to the essay you know one thing that I was really kind of drawn to you talking about this idea of a community, both the idea of, you know, how constricted some people want the genre to be. You know, this is, and you know, I'm also, I'm also like a heavy metal and punk rock (laughs) fan. And one thing I've decided, you know, both in the horror world, but also in like music scenes is I hate gatekeepers. I hate the people 
who have like they have self-appointed themselves as like the guardians of purity of this form (laughs) right and you know you find it I just I get so tired of like some of the the Facebook fights about you know what is real horror you know is extreme mm-hmm. horror real horror is quiet horror? and it's like it's all it's all, all horror. <laughs> but you know one of the things that I found for me was missing when I started as a horror writer you know back in the nineties was that sense of community was you know mm-hmm. I I couldn't find that sense of community. That's why I I stepped away from fiction writing for a long time and went into the movie industry because mm-hmm. I wanted that sense of like a team, you know, a group. Right. <laughs> and it's been really interesting coming back into fiction writing in this like new world of like you said, social media and small press publishing. Right. right. And realizing that community has always been there, you know. So well, community has always been there. But, but like, you know, like you said, there are gatekeepers. And Mm -hmm. so, so I had the unique fortune of um, having, having an entry into this community of writers by way of my MFA program, Mm -hmm. because I didn't go to, I didn't go to conventions. I, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I went, I used to go to horror conventions here in Monroeville, like, years and years and years ago but I never went with anything in mind beyond being a fan of the genre mainly films um Mm -hmm. like maybe I'd go and like bump into Tom Savini or something and like that was like yeah because there's there's a there's a film festival at the Monroeville Mall that they do every year right Mm -hmm. yeah and and they have you know they have fan weekends all the time because Mm -hmm. a lot of the people who are in the Romero films are still living in the area you know, so there's a wealth of horror history here. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pittsburgh's um, definitely a horror it's, town. <laughs> it's steeped in it. And yeah, so and there's a lot of you guys out there. I mean, there's you, Sarah Tamaker, Gwendolyn Kyle. There are. We have a we have a large community of writers here. Yeah. yeah. And so so going to Seton Hill University mm-hmm. for their MFA program in writing popular fiction was kind of like it opened a lot of different doors for me mm-hmm. um because we travel in a pack right like there's a contingent of like horror writers who show up at all these different events and we're alumni we're all alumni of the mm-hmm. program and so you kind of have this ready-made gang of mm-hmm. horror writers that you know if you don't all tra- you're not maybe not, not traveling together because it's a low residency program so people are all over the place right but you show up and you're like, oh, are you going to the same cool? I'll see you there or or whatever. So I kind of had this, I was able to like ease into the community and it enabled mm. me to connect with people. I feel like faster than if I would have been trying to do this by myself. Mm. So one of the perks for me of that program is being part of that specific community that right. gave me access to a larger community. And talk a little bit about, because I'm fascinated by that program because it's it's an MFA in writing popular fiction, right? Right. So it's like, that's very specific and I it think is. very useful for people to know as a, because I've, I've definitely dealt with creative writing programs that I found as someone who, you know, was drawn to genre fiction and specifically horror fiction. I've, I've looked into some creative writing programs that were very clearly not going to be helpful. 
Right. And we're very clearly going to be looking down their nose at what I wanted to do. Oh, a hundred percent. So yeah, I mean, the thing about that is, so I, so my, my background is in, as in, um, is in English. Mm-hmm. And so I have a, a master's in, in English and I don't know when I was, when I was an undergrad or a grad student studying English literature, the thing about that is if you want to write fiction of any kind, it had better be literary fiction because mm-hmm. if you start adding monsters <laughs> or start talking about the experience, your personal experiences with, I don't know, fear, ghost, whatever, right? like you're going to be criticized for that because that's mm-hmm. not real fiction. Okay. So I dealt with that a lot as an undergrad and as a grad student and, uh, but, but what I, they're always going to be monsters in what I write, almost always. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that I couldn't talk about the things that I wanted to talk about in my fiction and express myself in a way that made sense to me, made me kind of shy away from writing fiction for a long time. Because right. if no one was going to take my work seriously, like they liked my academic work where I was mm-hmm. comparing the ills of the world to vampirism or writing about fairy tales as rape narratives. Like that's fine. Like you can, Mm -hmm. you can do that all you want, but they didn't want to read a story about a woman who, um, you know, gets involved with a vampire and then it unpacks like what that means for identity politics. They don't, Mm -hmm. they don't want to read that story. So the idea that there's this MFA program that en- enables you to write the kind of fiction that you want to write, you write, you're writing genre fiction, and there are different tracks. Like you can write romance, you can write uh, sci-fi and fantasy, mm-hmm. you can write horror, there's a mystery track. And then you can also, if you're like me, you sometimes want to bridge those things and like combine those genres, because sometimes that makes more sense to me in my head. Right. So yes, I can understand how some people might mistakenly think that a story about a young woman traveling with a vampire is a romance because that's a foundation of vampire fiction is mm-hmm. vampire romance. But I'm trying to unpack that and, and for lack of a better word, queer it because I don't think that that fiction is safe. Like I think that right. it's problematic to make it seem like vampire a vampire would be an ideal Part. Yeah, I was really fascinated reading Invisible Chains because I'm actually, full disclosure, I'm working on a vampire novel that has an element of a vampire romance, mm-hmm. but I'm trying to do kind of the same thing you do is I don't want to write Twilight. I don't want to write the like the safe vampire. So I'm trying to like explore the idea of what would it be like to genuinely fall in love with someone who is actually a monster? And, and what would it be like to have a monster actually fall in love with you? Right. You know, and I want to explore that sense of danger with that. Mm-hmm. And what I really loved about Invisible Chains, and we can go ahead and jump into it. Um, I do want to come back to some of the short fiction, but one thing I loved about Invisible Chains is that it really is kind of structured in a way where you think it's going to be a vampire romance. You know, you, you set us up with an expectation to very quickly start deconstructing it. Go ahead and kind of set up the novel for us a little bit, and then we'll kind of talk a little bit more in detail. Okay. Um, so it is a, it's a slave narrative, first mm-hmm. and foremost. It's mm-hmm. set in New Orleans? Or yeah, Louisiana. it's set, it's set yeah. in Louisiana, and um, it's a young 
a young woman who is a slave and it's told from her perspective. So mm-hmm. I tried to mimic actual slave narratives where someone is going through and telling you mm-hmm. oddly enough the horrors of their life like how ter- how terrible things are and it starts out on the plantation with her mother she gets taken to new orleans because she's given as a wedding gift to um the her half sister who she grew mm-hmm. up with on the plantation right and things just kind of keep getting worse from there so She is living in New Orleans, which gives her a little bit more freedom because she's allowed to leave the house on her own and go run errands. But, you know, they wore slave collars. So, you Mm -hmm. you know, and it wasn't like it wasn't like a big honking, you know, like clasp around your neck. It was just like basically a necklace that had like Mm -hmm. a tag on it, letting people know that you belong to someone. Right. So you weren't going to run away um, because people were people were keeping track of that. Right. So she, you know, she can go out into the world and she can see more and she can interact with other slaves and other free people of color, but she still has to go home. And home is really terrible. Um, mm-hmm. Her half sister's husband is just a disgust is just a disgusting person. Mm-hmm. And her um, half sister is pretty disgusting. And her half sister is is terrible too. Yeah. And so they have a house guest come to visit mm-hmm. as a potential, at least pretending to be a potential client right. and yeah because the takes, the husband's an architect yes he's right? an architect so is, he's actually based on a real person in new orleans history in, oh interesting interesting i want to hear a little bit more about that but the the house guest is he's basically like a potential business prospect right he comes saying that he wants to have a house built and and that's not enti- that's not entirely true mm-hmm. so but he takes a he almost immediately becomes obsessed with the protagonist and makes his interest in her known immediately like mm-hmm. just openly letting everyone in the house know about his interest in her which you know at the time would not have been would not have been strange right. and that would have been um that would have been an option for him to mm-hmm. have access to her if that is something that her owner would permit Mm -hmm. but they weirdly build a connection because he begins to see things in her beyond what he initially thought right there are things hidden things about her that he recognizes because he is part of a hidden world Mm -hmm. and as they spend more time together you start to think that his feelings for her are genuine and he really wants to help her right i'm still not sure that's true (laughs) Well, and I think like one thing you do so well in that novel with the slave narrative is truly setting up that the the quote unquote normal circumstances of her life mm-hmm. are genuinely horrifying and mm-hmm. consistently horrifying over mm-hmm. and over. There's a I don't want to use the word mundanity because there's nothing in the story that's mundane, but you capture the idea that this is every day. Mm-hmm. It's every there's just the grind of her life. Right. And so when this stranger comes into her life, you really set us up to like we want to root for the romance. Yeah. We want you know he's dangerous but but we're like please just get her out of this situation. Right. And that's a really I really don't, I don't want to spoil anything, but I think we've already kind of hinted that it's not going to play out 
in that simple right. of a way right in in that kind of a schematic of a romantic sort of, he's he's mm-hmm. not a savior we should we we can i think say that much yeah and no. so when certain things are revealed it it's actually doubly devastating because we were really like i found myself so invested in like just give her a moment of someone not being terrible (laughs) and you know she definitely does find that at at points in the novel but Mm -hmm. you know it's it's a fast-paced read and it's an entertaining read but it was a harrowing i found it really harrowing to read Mm -hmm. i've had people say to me that while they were reading it, the scenes where she is interacting with monsters or the supernatural were like, they were able to take a breath from Mm -hmm. the horrors of her day-to-day life, which was like, wow, I never, okay. Okay. So monsters are a better option for her. (laughs) Yeah. But you, but I would say like you fake us out with that Yeah, because at first they seem like a better option and then maybe Maybe not so much. Right. But again, you know, the monster kind of reflects already her real world circumstances. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the monster's metaphor idea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's interesting in your essay in the Am I Really a Horror Writer, you do talk about uh, Toni Morrison mm-hmm. and Beloved. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, again, back to this idea, you know, we're talking about the, you know, this kind of arbitrary line people want to draw in creative writing programs sometimes between literary fiction, I'm doing the scare quotes, literary fiction, right, and popular or genre fiction. And you really make the point that, you know, Beloved, Toni Morrison's Beloved, is a horror novel. Oh, 100%. And I, and I 100% agree with that. And I would even say, although it's been a long time since I've read it, so I don't remember it that clearly, but I remember The Bluest Eye having elements that felt like it was dipping into horror as yeah. well. And I'm always frustrated by people who have this idea that, well, because it's literary fiction, which it is, mm-hmm. it can't also be horror fiction. Right. And you know, Beloved is a straightforward horror novel in so many ways. Yeah. Um, And it's also one of... <laughs> One of the greatest novels of the 20th century, like no, you know, no doubt about it. So, and and I can really see with Invisible Chains, you know, you kind of pulling from that kind of heritage. You know, you talk about, you know, people wanted to classify it as romance or historical fiction Mm -hmm. and really didn't want to classify it as horror. And that's just fascinating to me because to me, it's so obviously horror and it's Mm -hmm. obviously historical fiction. And I would say it's, got elements of romance even though it's a very complicated (laughs) approach to romance right well I guess and that's that's another thing that I feel like I keep trying to talk about in my work is that you know not everyone has access to the happily ever after in Mm. romance right Uh, a lot of us have gone through some really complicated dangerous or painful experiences Mm -hmm. and that completely colors your view of romance and so I don't know that all romances should necessarily have happy endings I think that's kind of weird yeah and we're you know we're gonna talk about uh the Hitchcock film Marnie in a little Mm -hmm. bit and it's interesting watching that movie um again after having read Invisible Chains and really you know drawing some connections there because um and this is something you know again going back to some of your short fiction uh, I read the you know, the stories Josephine, the Hagstone, and like I said, thus thus do we reach to the stars. 
-hmm. And they all have elements of, you know, either a romantic or an erotic encounter or both Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's this idea of the, it's too good to be true, you know, (laughs) right? Um, and kind of knowing it's too good to be true, but trying to tell yourself that maybe it's, you're trying to convince yourself that it's not right. Um, And that's definitely something I think in in the Hitchcock film and Marnie Mm -hmm. that presents itself. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, that movie is bonkers. Yeah, um, <laughs> well, well, definitely. I do want to talk a little bit about, and uh, we'll, we can come back to Invisible Chains, but I want to talk a little bit about both with Josephine and Thus Do We Reach to the Stars. Talk about talk about those stories a little bit. And I'm specifically kind of interested in where Josephine came from. So Josephine, so I, I've been kind of researching not officially, but kind of officially, mm-hmm. the connection between horror and pornography. Mm-hmm. I'd like to write something about it. And so I started doing a little digging about that because it's interesting to me that initially horror films and pornographic films had the same rating at the movie th- movie theaters. They were mm-hmm. both X-rated. Right. Because they were depicting scenes of debauchery at one Mm. level or another. So sex and horror were like this. Mm. And I went back maybe about a year or so ago and was rewatching all of my favorite like slasher or other like horror films that I was watching as a, as a kid and into my teens that were like from the um, late seventies, early eighties. And I never put together how often there are scenes with naked women Mm -hmm. in those films. The opening scene of Carrie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a shower scene. And you're not really, you're seeing completely full frontal nudity of, Mm -hmm. of, of young women. It's supposed to be teenagers from the start. Yeah. And they're supposed to be teenagers and it's, you know, they're in high school. They're, you know, they just either finished gym class or whatever. Right. And it's not only are they naked, but it's also a scene of humiliation for mm-hmm. for Carrie, which I don't know if the people making the film put this together, but for a lot of women, that is a horror scene in itself. Mm-hmm. That's a horror scene. Right. But for a lot of people viewing that, the the sexualized nature of it would have not made them think about the fact that it's not just a scene of bullying or being mean to the weird girl. All of them on some level in that scene are probably experiencing some form of anxiety. Mm-hmm. They're all naked in front of each other. Mm-hmm. And the thing that that kind of like solidifies them as a tribe in that space is focusing that on one other person mm-hmm. and making that one person feel terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's high school in a nutshell. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and it's and it's interesting if if you and I don't know the exact uh, circumstances, but I know Stephen King has talked about it when he wrote the novel. You know, and obviously that scene's right out of the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he wrote the scene and immediately threw it in the trash because he was like, "I don't know how to write this," and he right. actually had to have his wife uh, Tabitha help him with yes. that <laughs> because um he really realized he was like oh i'm over my skis here talking about you know these young women it was not an experience he really felt confident with right but then of course she you know tabitha king she was able to tap right into it and kind of right. like so i think right. she deserves a lot of credit for how much because it's both in the book and in the movie it's just a powerful yeah upsetting disturbing scene 
Right. But then, like, I started really thinking about it. I was like, almost every movie mm-hmm. that I watched at that time period, there are naked women. Mm-hmm. And not only are there naked women, but it's the idea, like, it's one of the rules of horror. If you are having sex out of wedlock, you're dead. Like, mm-hmm. you're, yeah, you're, yeah. you're on the victim list immediately. Yeah, um, and those slasher movies in particular of that time period were very... <laughs> Yeah, it's a weird, it's weird messaging. Yeah. It's weird it, messaging. It's very weird messaging because it's, you know, they want you to experience the eroticism mm-hmm. and then punish you and the character for the eroticism. That's right. In the That's moment. Right. And you know that the, you know, the the thought process on a purely marketing level was just like, let's get her top off because that'll right. put butts in seats, you know. They're right. not they're not thinking about the commentary. <laughs> No. And, you know, and what's funny about that to me, I mean, really funny to me about that is, you know, at a certain point, I don't know if it was, maybe it was Roger Corman, maybe it was like after him, but like the idea of marketing horror films to a teenage audience, like that's who you want in your, that's who you want in your seats, specifically teenage boys. Mm. That is your target audience for this, for this genre of, of films. And that's that connection to pornography right there. Right. And so, you know, you've got your skin magazines and you've got your horror movies Mm -hmm. and, and you're targeting a young audience of boys and you want them to spend money on both of these things on both of these things mm-hmm. but again the messaging is these things we want you to spend money on them but you should feel bad about it right and you shouldn't talk about it too much because it's going to be offensive to other people mm-hmm. so in my brain i'm like these these things are these things are clearly related mm-hmm. because if you're marketing to teens, we're talking about puberty. And if you're conflating sex and horror, mm-hmm. that's going to cause some problems in your brain. Mm-hmm. And it's going to cause some problems with how you interact with the rest of the world. Sure. Or maybe it makes you, and here's just a wild idea, maybe it makes you a more stable person because you're awake to the idea that life is a little bit more complicated than yeah. like boobs and blood. I don't know. Yeah, I would like to, as as someone who grew up watching those movies, as the teenage boy that was being marketed to with those films, I, I would like to think that that's how it played out. Right. You know? But I don't think that's true of everybody. <laughs> that's no, no, it's not. Yeah. And and I think that that that's like and the and here's the thing: some of those people who enjoyed those movies are now gatekeepers yeah no, that's absolutely true mm-hmm. and you know and, and and then to go back to josephine because you know so the setup for josephine is it, it's following i believe her name is luna is yes that the character's name? and she's uh she's brazilian and she is black and she's mm-hmm. a pornographic actress right who's probably... based on an actual pornographic actress oh interesting interesting yeah. and she's uh gone she's she's working in europe and she's been contracted to do a scene with and we again not trying to spoil anything but a fellow performer who's not exactly what he appears right we just leave it there but one thing you get into because it's not just the combination of sort of sex and violence but you get into the 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 racial fetishization mm-hmm. of her specifically because she resembles josephine baker Right. trying to relive a pretty um problematic fantasy 
Yes. Where was the, so where did, where did that connection to Josephine Baker come in? I feel like it's purely coincidence Mm -hmm. because I don't know. That's what, that's the way my brain works sometimes. So (laughs) I just don't know where the connection happens. (laughs) Well, well, I don't know where they're going to come from. And I'm often just like, Oh my gosh. Okay. So here's, here's the thing. While I was like, you know, doing research and watching porn, I because I'm trying to figure out in for myself, like what these things really are, like what, what am I really seeing? Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I write about, I write about women of color and I write about them in harrowing situations where they have to generally like try to figure out how they're going to get themselves out of those terrible situations Mm -hmm. while also battling their inner need for connection. Right. So, you know, I'm, I became a little fascinated by this one particular porn actress because some somehow what she was doing is was a little different. She yes, was she being placed in situations where she was being fetishized? Was she, mm-hmm. her body being used in ways that connect to racial fetish, fetishization? Yes. Right. Okay. But in a lot of instances it felt more like she was flipping it in a sense where she was reclaiming her power in a mm-hmm. lot of those situations. And I'm not sure I could give you a, like specifics on that, but as I'm like watching her and how she's making use of her body and how she's interacting in these different films, I started thinking this woman is the Josephine Baker of porn. And I, and I, it's just a thought that came to me. Yeah. And because- I could and that definitely plays out in the story. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you know, the just, way she's kind of reclaims the fetish. Right. Because I think that's what Josephine did too. Right. She was very powerful. Like, you know, here's this idea of this tiny black woman mm-hmm. in 1920s France dancing in nothing more than, a, you know, a banana skirt. What could be more vulnerable than that? Right. Mm -hmm. And she uses her body and her personality and she turns it into power. It's like magic. Right. And so she has this huge following of fans, not only in, in Europe, but in the United States, but when she comes back to the United States, she doesn't have the same freedoms that she has specifically in France. And then she becomes an activist. She was a spy during World War II. She takes this idea of being basically what we consider today as a stripper Mm -hmm. and turns it into this powerful life of helping others, being a spy and fighting evil. Like, yeah, that's that's amazing. Part of why I was so fascinated by the story is because, um, so I have another podcast called The Weirdest Thing um, that I do with my friend Amelia. And our, our approach to the podcast is, is basically, it we sort of compare it to, um, you know, stuff you missed in history class, crossed with my favorite murder, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like odd things from history that we tell in a kind of irreverent way. But she recently did an, an episode where she talked about Josephine Baker and really how Josephine Baker really changed like beauty standards of the yeah. time. And she went into, you know, the stuff you're talking about, about her being a spy and everything. And just she's, she was such a fascinating mm-hmm. character, just, just person, you know? Right. 
Um, and so the way you used that kind of iconography in the story, I thought was really smart and really interesting. While it, you know, and I thought it was it was such an interesting story in that it's on one level a pretty straightforward erotic horror story that is also a very kind of cool-eyed deconstruction of porn you know and you know sort of sort of a critique of porn while at the same time kind of working as like a piece of erotica you know horror erotica I thought that was really that balance was really interesting and so we have some of that also in Invisible Chains although so much of the sex in Invisible Chains really is based around assault Right, but then in a lot of your short fiction, and again, I'm I'm kind of going to Josephine, and in particular, thus do we reach to the stars. You know, I I have to admit, you know, I I don't think of myself as particularly prudish as a writer, but when I do sit down, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna write something sexy. I tend to choke. I tend to I don't know. I get in my head about it or whatever. Mm-hmm. I found your stuff so kind of frank, like just the the depiction of sexuality is so frank and kind of almost matter of fact, which to me kind of added to the eroticism of it. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not really trying too hard. It just kind of is. It's very like right. this. This is the experience these people are having. How do you approach that? Because I'm I'm as someone who struggles with that myself. I'm always fascinated by that. I'm not really sure what to say about that, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna try to talk about what that's like for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really appreciate your take, your take on it because mm-hmm. I don't, I'm never sure that I'm like hitting the mark mm-hmm. because I'm not always sure what the mark is. Like, well, it seems like it would I'll be so about, individual for each well, person. Yeah. yeah. Right. And like, if I'm, if I'm writing about, if I'm writing about sex, obviously it's going to, it's going to be a snapshot or maybe, you know, a doorway into how I view it in the real world. Right. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that, I don't know that I think about it like that when I'm, when I'm writing it. Mm -hmm. It's very, like, there's an honesty to it that seems Mm -hmm. like it, 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 you know, and I've talked about this. I, I, I have, I tend to be more on the quiet horror side of what I write, but I have mm-hmm. an appreciation for some of the more splatterpunk stuff. Mm-hmm. But sometimes my frustration with splatterpunk can be when it's like, oh, you're trying so hard to shock me that it becomes kind of laughable. Right. And I can find that happen. And, and sometimes you have it in the same story, you know, extreme horror that's trying to kind of be sort of explicitly sexual and explicitly violent, you know? Right. Right. There's a lot of like try hard that happens there. You know, it's sure. You know, it's it's very like trying to be so in your face. And what I really appreciated about your stuff is that it just felt like it just there's there's a naturalness to it. Um mm-hmm. and there's a playfulness to it. That's one thing, particularly with Thus Do We Reach to the Stars. But I'd say even with Josephine, there's a playfulness to the sexuality that mm-hmm again feels very like realistic to what that experience is for people right yeah I I feel like sometimes like there's a place in Mm -hmm. fiction and film where sex becomes like a focal a focal point of the story Mm -hmm. and it's about struggle or Mm -hmm. it has a heavier heavier meaning in the story But I think that it's okay to maybe not take it so seriously sometimes. Mm-hmm. There should be playfulness. If I mean, 
for me, like if I'm not laughing and enjoying myself, mm-hmm. I don't feel like it's it's a good experience. Like right. I feel like a lot of people come to it with a, a level of seriousness that just steals the joy, the joy mm-hmm. from it. And so even though in both of these instances, you know, I'm writing, I'm writing horror stories and the protagonist is engaging in sexual relationships with very dangerous partners, right. there's still room for playfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they understand that they're in danger. Mm-hmm. And without that levity, it just becomes really dire and really sad almost. Mm-hmm. Because they're choosing, they're choosing to engage in these situations, knowing the danger. I think the fact that they have a little bit of distance, um, and then this is even true in Invisible Chains with Jacqueline, with her relationship with the stranger that comes into the house, where she's really vacillating between being kind of drawn to him and attracted to him, and then also disgusted by him, and also like annoyed by him, (laughs) like running the entire gamut but she's very aware of what she's thinking and it's the same in in the short fiction um i think this is particularly true in josephine and i think having the characters have that little bit of like almost ironic distance helped me identify with them more because like Mm -hmm. you said if they were just throwing themselves headlong into these obviously dangerous situations and seemed to be completely unaware of the danger You know, it it becomes that thing in slasher movies of like, why are the characters acting so stupid? You know, right? But if but if you're like aware that like this is a bad idea, but I'm gonna do it anyway because this is kind of what I want to do. We all can relate to that. I think we've all had that experience of like knowing that like this is probably not the thing I should do, but I really want to like give it a shot. You know, right? Right. Well, and like I think I think that that like that idea of you know characters acting stupid like it's that's not just reserved for horror films that's mm-hmm. that's in, that's in romantic fiction too especially mm. where vampires are involved <laughs> i could imagine yeah. so you know i mean you've got you know one of the best examples is is twilight mm-hmm. but i think that's something that um so i i've written a little bit about that and i've written a little bit about the discovery of witches series, which, mm. you know, the main vampire in the discovery of witches series is, it's not just that he's a vampire that makes him dangerous. Like I wrote an article about white privilege being his scariest mm. quality because he has access to unimaginable wealth. He literally has a fortress in France He has a secret army that he can pull upon at any time to deal with whatever's going on in the world and to protect his wealth and family. And because of his position, he completely subverts the culture in which he lives in by engaging in an illicit relationship with a witch. And it's almost like um, Christian Grey in the Fifty Shades of Grey kind of. Yes, it is. It's very similar. And the other thing is that so this vampire has a rare disorder mm-hmm. so that if he drinks too much blood, he literally goes into what is called a blood rage and then becomes mm. so dangerous that you can't even be in the same room with him. Okay. In almost every instance of these very popular romance stories, the object of affection, that particular person 
either smells or tastes really good to the vampire who is the lead, the mm. lead romance, uh, the lead romantic character. So, you know, not only are they, you know, attractive and um, apparently dumb enough to <laughs> engage in this relationship, but they're also really good to eat. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. Talk about objectifying a character. Right. You know? Right. No, but I I think and and that's what makes you know that's 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 sort of the line, like I said, in, in my vampire novel that I'm working on. I'm trying to walk that line kind of. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of toggling between the vampire's perspective and the and the human's perspective. Right. I think you know, you you keep pretty clearly in Jacqueline's perspective. Mm-hmm. But like like you said, you know, she is very aware of kind of the again, it's the idea of flirting with danger, flirting with death. Mm-hmm. It, it almost like goes back to the Bluebeard story in a way of right. like, you know, the wife and blue she knows like I shouldn't open this door, but you know, it's the curiosity killed the cat thing. You right. can't help yourself. Right. And I think just having that sense of awareness really humanizes the characters because right. the pro and I haven't read the discovery of witches, but the, but the problem with that kind of stuff, and I think it's the problem that at least I found with with the Twilight movies. I've never read the books, is that you become so exasperated with the character that that you kind of lose your empathy for her. Right. And I never well, felt that in Invisible Chains at all. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, no, I was with her all the way through. What's interesting to me about the Twilight books and movies, um, I've delved into both uh, because I'm a glutton for punishment, but I never thought of the vampires as being particularly dangerous in the way that most people might think about vampires as being dangerous. It's a pretty safe sense of danger. (laughs) Yeah, they're they're safe if you are not a teenage girl who's being stalked by one. Right. But what was really interesting to me, the first time that you really get that Edward Cullen is a monster is in Midnight Sun, which is the most recent book in that series, mm-hmm. which is basically Twilight, but told from Edward's perspective. Mm. Yeah, I heard about these. Uh, oh, yeah. Like I said, I've only seen the movies. So. And that is that. That book is a horror novel. Really? Because you're seeing it through his eyes. Really? That scene in the science classroom where she where Bella walks in and he catches a whiff of her because mm-hmm. the fan blows past her. Like, I don't know if that's clear to I don't know if that's as clear to people who've only seen the film, but in the book, the idea is that her scent her scent is triggering for him Hmm. like it makes him want to drink blood specifically her blood and in midnight sun that scene as seen through his eyes is terrifying because he calculates how he's going to kill everyone else in the room quickly so he has time to sit and savor her blood before he has to escape wow yeah that that's different very <laughs> i mean i haven't read the book but that's very different than the movie <laughs> yeah yeah um that's interesting that's yeah. very interesting yeah <laughs> wow now, now now i'm intrigued now i almost want to read it <laughs> i kind of written those books off but that really kind of um mm-hmm. that that kind of like piques my interest just for that scene alone mm-hmm. 
like that that kind of blew my mind a little bit yeah that like, that yeah. is really yeah. i mean that is there's nothing that i experienced in the movies and from the people i know who've read the books it's kind of sounded like the books were similar where there's nothing that even like tiptoed up to that level of darkness so for her to go there what's her name stephanie right. meyer that's the yeah. author mm-hmm. for her to go there kind of so late after people have really identified with this character be like right. no this is what's really going on with him right that that's right. kind of gutsy like i have that i have to respect that right well and the thing is i mean the thing like as i was reading the the novels the things that were like frightening to me weren't initially frightening to me until I like mm. really went back and thought about them. Sure. But the idea that a, that a teenage girl is putting herself in a, in a situation where mm. in order to be with the person that she loves the most, she has to be willing to allow him to murder her. Mm-hmm. She has to be willing to die for her ha- happily ever after. Mm-hmm. These books should be cautionary tales. They're not. Sure. Yeah. And the way and that's I, what it I mean, sounds like. Yeah. Right. And I and I theor I theorized this idea that like you ha- you're gonna have an entire generation of 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 young women viewing abusive partnership as normal, like mm-hmm. normalizing it, right? And I know so that that was kind of the knock on both that and Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. And I know, you know, I, I've known uh, people who have been involved in like the kink and BDSM community and you don't even get them started on Fifty Shades of Grey because they're it's like, all wrong. yeah, they're like, this is so irresponsibly written and presented, mm-hmm. you know, right. um, and it's for that, that exact reason. It, it normalizes really predatory abusive behavior. Sure. Well, and so, you know, so I had this thought in my head, I'm like, these, these books are really dangerous because Mm -hmm. The, like the fan base is like anywhere from like 14 to like 40. Like that was Mm -hmm. like, that was like the main range of, of audience for those books. It goes a little bit beyond on either side, but I was like, this is really, this is dangerous. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I wrote a series of articles kind of like unpacking, like why those relationships are unhealthy. And I looked at the Twilight books. I looked at Discovery of Witches and I pulled in a couple of other, a couple of other things that, that I'd read that were basically setting women up to be sacrificial lambs. Like they are, they're going to willingly let you kill them so that they can be in a a romantic relationship with you. And so I wrote these articles and my friend, uh, Stephanie Wytovich used them in one of her classrooms for one of the horror courses that she was teaching. Mm-hmm. And she confirmed my belief. None of the girls in that room, none of the girls or young women who were reading those articles had ever stopped to think about vampires as being monsters. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, good. I got to test my theory right. out in the wild. That's great. Um, but it was also like, oh, no, because I didn't want to be right about that. Mm-hmm. But there, But there you go. Well- and it's interesting because you know you mentioned Anne Rice, and uh, it's funny because I I remember back when I started getting seriously into horror, and this is I think the gatekeepers thing again, is mm-hmm. you know obviously I started with Stephen King, like just about everyone in the world does, right. <laughs> pretty quickly onto Clive Barker, right. um, and then you know I discovered uh, Shirley Jackson, I discovered, and I know you talked about it in your essay, Tanana of Dew is actually a pretty early discovery for me. Right. But then there was Anne Rice, and there was a lot of people who was like, "Well, she's not really horror, you know." A lot, she's not horror. She's she's this is, 
and and I read in a, I haven't read a ton of Anne Rice's stuff, but the stuff I've read, I'm like, no, that's that's horror. Like, yeah. Interview with the Vampire is scary. It's uh, a scary yeah, book. It is. And and I'm actually, you know, I with my vampire novel, I've been trying to kind of remember the feeling I had when I read Interview with the Vampire, where there is an eroticism and a romanticism. And obviously, a lot of it is is like it's a homoerotic. It's a queer romanticism, right. mm-hmm. and it's you know there's something that's enticing about it, oh, and yeah. it feels very dangerous throughout mm-hmm. the entire book. You know, it, it and that is where and you know back and again thinking of uh, Tenenbaum do her Living Blood series. I think even though they're not technically vampire novels, they have a they have a very similar sense of of kind of walking this line between you know romantic love and the sense of real genuine danger mm-hmm. coming from the person that you love. Right. And so that's where it you know even having only watched the movies and not having read the books that I always had that feeling about um, Twilight, mm-hmm. but it felt like this is this is not what this archetype should be. Yeah. <laughs> you know the the vampire archetype should be you know even if you go with the like i'm thinking of uh, coppola's uh take on bram stoker's dracula which is sort of a more romantic take than the novel right he still feels dangerous you know gary Ullman still feels dangerous in that. yeah I mean, <laughs> you know, he, 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 there's like, nothing neutered about that character no you know? he transforms into terrifying things mm-hmm. And he's there are there are things about that character from his from that depiction that are super attractive, mm-hmm. but also super scary. Like I, I I question a lot of my thought processes from when I was younger and how they're changing a bit as I get older. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this idea that vampires are super sexy is very problematic it's Mm -hmm. very problematic i'm probably not going to stop feeling that way but i'm going to at least be more aware of why i'm feeling that way if if they are sexy we need to like acknowledge that part of what is sexy about them is is what we need to like run away from yeah <laughs> you know it, it it can't be be because they are you know they are metaphorically predatory often you know often male figure not always obviously you know my my novel deals with uh two women actually but mm-hmm. you know think about you know the classic dracula archetype this is like classic toxic masculinity you know yeah and that needs to be yeah that can, you know as much as that is sexy to people we need to like kind of unpack that you know, right. Yeah. Uh, can't just sort of be like, you know, aren't they cute and sparkly like that? No. No. <laughs> right. it, it still has teeth and he will eat you. Yeah. Right. And that actually is maybe, um, I want to transition. Uh, I do want to talk about Marnie. This almost feels like a good segue into Marnie. Okay. So you mentioned just Hitchcock in general, and then obviously Marnie specifically. What is it about Hitchcock that draws you in just mm-hmm. as a filmmaker? So, you know, I grew up in a household where his films were a regular part of of life. Like that's something that we watched together as a family. Mm-hmm. So I had access to them at a very young age and and watched them unconsciously. Like most people watching his films, like 
at a first viewing, mm-hmm. you're just kind of like unconsciously taking things in and you start to see patterns, you know, over time. So, you know, oh, this is definitely a Hitchcock movie because this happens, this happens and this happens. Okay. But you, maybe right. you're not like really thinking about it or, or really like putting, like putting a spin on like why that matters. But then I took film classes in college and started really looking at what he does as a filmmaker and then I started getting more interested in like his life and like Mm -hmm. why he chose to do certain things or and so you know initially it's a it's a comfort because it's something that I watched with my family right but then it became more about why is this important and why is he doing these different things? Mm-hmm. I'm a huge, I get excited. It's maybe it's weird, but I get excited when I see that shot in any one of his films where you get like kind of like an overview of a, a room or a crowd. Mm-hmm. So you, you kind of like see everything like in this wide shot and then it narrows down to the thing that you're supposed to be looking at. Right. That always excites me for some reason. I'm just like, oh, that's like, you know, that's something because it's a recognizable, it's a recognizable trait in his films. You can like, ex- you kind of like can expect it. Mm-hmm. Or the idea that there's a lot happening in one space. There may not be a lot of action, mm-hmm. but there's a lot happening. Right. Well, there's there's so much of a, you know, I remember studying Hitchcock in film school. I feel like so much of what he does with the camera and what he was so great at, and, and it goes along with what you were just saying, is is it's all about, like, no, look closer. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, here's the surface. No, but you got to look. Look at this detail. Look at this right. this thing. And Marnie has so much of that. It's like, look at the keys. Look at the, mm-hmm. the combination of the safe. You right. Know? It's always about like no, you got to look closer, look closer. Right. Um, it's not what the, what's not what it appears at first glance. Right. Well, and you know, I remember seeing that movie a long time ago. I I couldn't tell you when exactly. I don't know if I was mm-hmm. in my teens or my twenties, and I knew that there was something different about it. I just mm-hmm. I didn't have the I didn't have the frame of reference yet to really like put it together for myself. Right. And I decided on a whim to watch it again recently, and. Wow, there is a <laughs> lot happening in that yeah. movie that is just kind of like off the rails. And we, um, should, we should kind of like set up just sort of the story because I think Marnie is one of those movies where I think a lot of people actually haven't watched it. Right. So it's it's basically it's about you know Tippy Hedren. She plays Marnie. She's I guess you would say like a con artist. She she goes in. She gets these jobs as like a secretary. Yes. For a couple months. Yeah. To like work her way into a company where she can then like break into the safe, steal a bunch of money and then disappear. Right. Um, and so she's done this over and over again, but she happens in her new job, her boss, uh, mm-hmm. played by Sean Connery, recognizes her because mm-hmm. you have dealings with a previous boss. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of, it becomes this sort of cat and mouse of uh, him essentially letting her go through with her, her heist plan so that he can then have this power over her because he has decided that he's quote unquote in love with her. Right. And then <laughs> um, yeah. essentially blackmails her into marrying him. I think we can right. go that far. Right. Yes. Yeah, and so, it is and bonkers. He, well, and he even refers to himself as a sexual blackmailer. Like mm-hmm. that's the thing that's like, what? Okay. He, yeah, um, he's not he's he's creepily self-aware. Yeah. Um. <laughs> he knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah. 
yeah he he so he makes so he has like this weird there's this weird thing where he is in some ways he studies he studies animal behavior he's fascinated mm-hmm. by animal right. behavior and one of the things he says to her initially when he starts setting her up is that women or female animals are often the predators in the wild mm-hmm. right and he tries to bait her by getting her to admit that she's a predator right which she doesn't see herself that way she is a survivor uh-huh. and she's trying to make the most out of a terrible set of life circumstances right which weirdly turns her into a horse girl i don't know what that's all about but like <laughs> she like she steals all this money so that she can maintain this fantasy life of owning a horse right instead of having a husband and children like she's not interested in that she doesn't mm-hmm. want to have anything to do with men except to steal from them basically she wants to to maintain right. her well that is, that is, life. i hadn't really thought about that now that you say it though he sees her as this predator you know and there's there's a connection made really early where when she first goes into his office she sees the picture of the jaguar undie on his desk and says oh that's you know i trained that she says right. to do what and he said trust me Right. He says, what it, what it will, like, you know, is that harder? He says, yeah, for Jaguar Undy. But he's yeah. clearly making this, like, he's basically, he's basically telling her exactly what he's going to do to her. Right. But meanwhile, she identifies with a horse, which is as far from a predatory animal as you can right. get. And the whole thing with the horse, uh, we don't need to go into it, but the whole thing with the horse at the end, I had forgotten about that. That was dark. Yeah, um, it was very dark. Very, and just crushing at yeah. the end but right um anyway but yeah no that that's a really interesting that you know he he's essentially a, a frustrated zoologist and he approaches <laughs> right? her as a, like like an animal trainer he's basically right. approaching her like an animal trainer in a exactly. very i mean i th- and I, and i don't think this would be a, a controversial statement i mean to me he is truly the villain of the film Oh, yeah, 100%. And I'm not sure that the movie knows that he's the villain. That's the... No, that's that's it. That's interesting. Yeah, because if... Okay, maybe Hitchcock secretly knows that. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Because, first of all, you don't cast Sean Connery as your leading man unless you want people to be super excited about how charming, funny, right. smart, and sexy your leading man is. Yeah, because he so was he, he was really hot off of like the first couple Bond movies. Yeah, time. I think this is like right around the t- right right on the tail end of him making Doctor Now. I'm pretty sure. I think that's right. And so people know who this is, mm-hmm. and he is now the super sexy spy. Like the super sexiest spy of all time, right? Right. And now he is in a very weird, subverted, screwball comedy Mm -hmm. directed by Hitchcock. So it's a horror film. Hitchcock loved to do that. He loved to take the screwball comedy and kind of throw a real dark twist into it. Yeah. I mean, even Psycho in some ways is almost a screwball comedy setup to a certain degree. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and he, I mean, he he did it in, in in other films. I feel like he does it more in films that are lesser known, but they're there. There's like there's, the Thirty Nine Steps is a straight yes, up screwball comedy, exactly. Yeah. But if you know, if you're if you're if you're casting actors like Harry Grant and Sean Connery, mm-hmm. you want them, you want your audience to view them as desirable. Right. Hey, that's not 
that's not a that's not coincidental. Yeah, some of it's about the studio system and some of it's about you have to hire these actors, blah, blah, mm. blah. But there's a level of, of calculation there. If you have an actor who is already recognized as a sex symbol, mm-hmm. someone that your female audience desires and someone that your male audience wants to be. Right. Any combination of those things, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have Sean Connery, who also has this weird backstory of mistreating women. Now we know that now. Yep. And so there's this weird, there's this weird surreal element to how he's behaving in this film. Mm-hmm. Because with the hindsight of like what his actual behavior is like in his real life, what we know about Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. And, and how Hitchcock treated Tippy Hedren. Exactly. Like yeah. I think there's something about the fact that I don't know if it was the, if it was this film or if it was in the birds, but he I think I think it was in Marnie. I think he that scene on the boat that's mm-hmm. like clearly a horror scene that's right. meant that set up like a traditional romantic scene at the time mm-hmm. where you have that you see both cup you see both sets of eyes of the couple like you'd like pan in on their faces and they're like juxtaposed and then you get the cutaway that shows you like either a door closing or like you see a, the portal window right. and that's how you know that they're engaging in sex okay right but in this particular situation, you know that she does not want to have sex. And so she's having sex against her will. She's like in a catatonic state while he's like looming over her. It's interesting because I remember this from film school, this being a topic of conversation, that there's a school of thought from certain, and these are, to me, this is the equivalent of the people who try to argue that Lovecraft wasn't actually a racist. It's like, there's there were people who would talk about this movie like, well, I don't think it's really meant to imply a rape scene. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Because it, it is a straight, I mean, it's not, it doesn't show it because this movie's from 1964, but it's it's not subtle. It's implied. And and I was actually uh, just this morning before we got on, I was reading, I was like, I didn't know much. You know, I knew obviously the stories of him mistreating Tippi Hedren, but I didn't know much about the kind of the development of this film, which is, I guess, based on a novel. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like in the novel, the rape scene is, is, is very clear. It's very mm-hmm. clearly a rape scene. Mm-hmm. And the screenwriter, Evan Hunter, who also wrote The Birds, he had basically gone to Hitchcock and said, we can't have this be a rape scene and tried to basically talk him out of it. And Hitchcock was like, no, absolutely not. And was like, this is exactly how I want to shoot it. And, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then Evan Hunter got fired off of the film oh. and he hired another screenwriter. And when Evan Hunter, who I think was a woman, actually. Yeah, uh, I do remember seeing that. Yeah. And when Evan Hunter talked to her later, she was like, no, you, you need to understand that scene was the reason why he wanted to make the movie. Yeah. And that tells you a lot about mm-hmm. Alfred Hitchcock, I think. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. Right, it's, it's a straight up, it, it's, you know, Marnie isn't quite a horror movie, but it kind of is a horror movie. And that scene is a horror scene. A hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, you in the context of the time period also and and i'm sure there are people who still believe this to this day but because that that she is now married to him mm-hmm. you have this belief that 
he that he has an all access pass to her. Right. So she said, I do. She's got a ring on her finger. And that's, you know, in some cases, that's a point of sale. He now owns her. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that he is having sex with her, whether it's against her will or not, he is justified in some people's view to do that because right. he is now her husband and that is her responsibility. Right. But it becomes even more dark when you look at the fact that she is trapped in the trauma of her childhood. And so uh-huh. in many ways, mentally, she is still a little girl. Right. And I just got to say, like, Tippi Hedren, I know, like, people knock her performance in this movie and knock her in The Birds. And I will admit, like, I love The Birds. I think her role is not all that well written in the birds mm-hmm. maybe but i thought she was good in that movie and actually i think she's pretty outstanding in marnie yeah and i, I love her <laughs> at the end when it all is revealed and she essentially regresses right it's that's also terrifying because it yeah. feels very real like it's this movie's fascinating because on some levels it was way ahead of its time in terms of understanding psychology and understanding yeah. the lingering effects of trauma mm-hmm. and post-traumatic stress right and all that and yet it doesn't it either doesn't understand or doesn't care about the fact that sean connery is a rapist <laughs> right it, it's such a strange dichotomy in this film Well, I mean, the thing is, I guess the idea is for some audience members, they want to believe that he really wants to help her. Uh And and maybe on some level, he's convinced himself of that, too. Right, right. That he's doing her a service, that he's saving her from herself. He's keeping her safe in the world, protecting her from other real dangers. He goes through a litany about the fact that by keeping her with him... He's keeping her out of prison. He's keeping her from maybe a less desirable man doing the same things to her. Like a Mm -hmm. less attractive man, I guess, is what he's getting at. Right. And it just gets really weird and uncomfortable and complicated because he genuinely believes that he's helping her, even Mm -hmm. though he's clearly preying on her weaknesses. Well, Well, he's, you know, I've had, I don't want to go into too deep of detail because these are not my stories to tell, but... I do have a, a couple of friends who've gone through abusive relationships. And one of the methods of abuse was financial abuse. It was oh, essentially yeah. creating a sense of financial dependency, um, right. which he absolutely does in this film. Mm-hmm. He basically, it's, it's this, you see, once he blackmails her into the marriage, it's just this steadily stripping her of her own agency to make her mm-hmm. own choices. Yep. Um, step by step by step. So even though, yeah, at the end, you can say like, okay, she's confronted her trauma and maybe she's better, although that's very questionable. Yeah. <laughs> she's still stuck with this guy. You right, know? right. So it does not feel like a happy ending at all. Well, no, in fact, in, like, you know, she's she's like, I'd rather, I'd rather stay with you than go to jail. Well, okay. That, yeah. Those are your <laughs> options? Jail she also looks like guy. at that point, you know, by the end when she says that, she just seems so broken. But like, oh, yeah, I do feel like Hitchcock understood a lot of what he was doing here. But there's, you know, like with so much of Hitchcock, it's just like there's a, you know, I love Hitchcock films. I really, you know, mm-hmm. he's obviously was a master filmmaker. But there was a genuine darkness in that man that yeah comes through, and and it's fascinating to watch. Right. Um, well, 
you know, something that um, something came up that came up for me while I was watching this movie. I don't, and I don't, again, I don't know where these thoughts come from. They just kind of like, I'm like, I put things together as I'm, as I'm reading something or watching something. And it occurred to me that in some ways, which are, was probably unconscious for him, he mm-hmm. created a lot of feminist narratives with his films mm-hmm. in a really weird, dark, way yeah um which kind of subversive way yeah yeah and so you know you have these women who are doing who are off doing their own thing maybe in nefarious ways but let's be realistic at that time period there weren't a lot of options for women to make the kind of money that they would need to live alone Mm -hmm. and pursue the things that they wanted out of life without reverting to maybe criminal activity maybe okay so you get that in psycho you get that in the birds and certainly in this movie right and so you know he's pretty clear about setting that up that these women are in situations where they're taking control of their lives but because of their because of the time period they live they live in it has to be something a little unsavory right so their circumstances are terrible from the beginning but he also is very clear that they are going to be punished for this as well. Uh-huh. So whether he's punishing them or he's using his license as a filmmaker to shine a light on how they're being treated in society, that, that's up for discussion. But I think in some ways you could argue that he's showing us don't get too don't get too set set in the idea that you're free because you're not because this is what's going to happen to you if you decide to keep going down this that's- path. Someone is going to come really interesting. and take that away from you. That that's uh, I'm going to draw a bit of an odd connection, um, but it just made me think. Of, you know, I'm Jewish, and I'm I'm interested in Jewish history and Jewish narratives, and and a lot of anti-Semitic stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And one, you know, that you have the like the Jewish money lender, the Jewish banker, the Jewish pawnbroker, right? And the thing that people don't realize is the reason why. Jewish people fell into these professions is because throughout Europe they were literally banned from other professions like mm-hmm. being farmers, being right. craftsmen, you know. Um, so we were pushed into these unsavory, like you said, right. again quotes, uh professions that then are then used as like a cudgel, you know. Sure. Um and it's and it's and it's interesting you're talking about how he's kind of depicting the women in his films in that mm-hmm. way where you know they're pushed literally into criminal i mean i think in psycho it's probably psycho and marmee are the most clear cases right where they are pushed directly into criminal behavior because of the way society has constricted their options and then they are horribly punished yeah but i mean even the bird you know it's more kind of playful because she's sort of depicted as like more of just like a silly shoplifter or whatever but like but still she's punished for for even that level of transgression right well she upsets the entire balance of a community yeah yeah her presence right right Mm -hmm. well that's really interesting well i don't want to keep you too much longer but I do want to give you a chance. I, I have to admit, I have not finished Nora Fagan yet, but tell us just a little bit about that. I've, I've started it. I'm enjoying it. One thing I will say is that the tone seems very different. It seems kind of lighter in some ways. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. It's the softer side of the apocalypse. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it, it's it's going to be a five book series. I just finished, literally just sent book two to the publisher last okay. week. 
And I believe, I believe (laughs) it is a love story between two people who can't really be together. Mm -hmm. There's a prophecy that joins them in an arranged marriage that will prevent the apocalypse because the day or the day after Lucifer fell from heaven, Mm -hmm. there's a conversation that takes place in hell between him and some of his archangel pals. And they talk about, they're like, okay, great. Um, you did the thing, you know, you, you upset the balance of things. This is great. What's, what's next? What, what do you, what do you plan? He's like, what are you talking, I don't, what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I don't understand. And like, well, what are your big plans? What are your next big plans? And he doesn't really have any big plans. He just was pissed off and right. had some, and got mouthy basically. Yeah. He's not necessarily concerned about the plight of humanity, um, you know, uh, much like Christopher Walken in the prophecy films, he, you know, the archangels refer to us as talking monkeys. And so basically they decide, well, this can't be for nothing. Like you, you, you can't have upset the balance of things like what, what balance. <laughs> and so they sort of talk about this idea that all good all the time sucks. Like that's no fun. Right. But all bad all the time is also not great for anyone. And right. so they construct this spell and a secret society around protecting the balance between good and evil. Mm-hmm. And these two characters, Nora Fagan, who is a, a succubus, mm-hmm. and Azazel the Fallen, who is a fallen angel, they are joined in a uh, in an arranged marriage, but they are not allowed to consummate that relationship until their wedding day, which will be on her 100th birthday. Mm -hmm. right now the problem with that is they genuinely like each other Mm -hmm. they actually are in love with each other they're very compatible in con in in complicated ways Mm -hmm. but they are not allowed to have sex before marriage at least not with each other and because she is a succubus she has to have sex with multiple people in order to stay alive right and so i think i'm trying to write i think a polyamorous love story with catastrophic (laughs) potential yeah if these two folks don't get together in the end interesting well like i said i've I've started it i I think i'm like four or five chapters and i'm really enjoying it um when when is the second book supposed to come out that is a good question because (laughs) i because i just turned it in Mm -hmm. um the first book came out in november last year right i'm not sure it's going to have that quick of a turnaround i'm hoping by the end of the year but it's more likely the beginning of next year okay well i'd love to have you back on uh once that's out because i'm i'm really uh i'd love to talk about it so I, i would love to i'm this has been a great conversation i'm having a great time All right. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much to Michelle Renee Lane for coming on and having that conversation. And for everyone else out there, uh, don't forget to rate, review, tell your friends, and I will be back with you again in a couple weeks.